praise worship to our king this morning um i'm at this time gonna invite you all to stand with me and open your bibles to psalm chapter 46 for our scripture reading this morning Psalm chapter 46, and we'll be reading the entire chapter. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. This is the word of the Lord. If you would all have your seats. And would you join with me at this time for, as we come to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, what timeless truth that we have just read. For us to consider, especially in light of our present circumstances that we are living through. With the chaos and suffering we see throughout the world, the struggles and suffering, the trials in our own lives, you call us simply to be still and know who you are, that you are God. We may not know or have the answers to all our questions. But it is enough for us to know you. Thank you that you have revealed yourself to us through your inerrant and authoritative word. That you are the creator of all. That you know all things perfectly from the beginning to the end. That you possess all knowledge and wisdom. And that your ways and your thoughts are higher than ours. And that you control all of human history for your divine and redemptive purpose, and that you are our refuge and strength and our very present help in trouble. May we, in the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider who you are, our God, our sovereign King, and that you have made the one as well as the other. Above all, thank you that you have also revealed yourself through your Son, Jesus Christ, God incarnate, 
who entered our darkness as the true light, that we might know you and have eternal life in him. As we just celebrated Christmas, we are mindful that Christ is our greatest gift and hope, not only for this season, but for every age and for all peoples. While this world celebrates the advent of a COVID vaccine, and we are certainly thankful for your common grace to us, and as people of this nation hold on to the hope that comes with the advent of a new year, or perhaps a new administration in the White House, we know that neither the passing of another year, nor advances in medical technology, nor political or economic change can ever address the darkness of our human condition. We all desperately need a savior from our sins, to be made alive from the deadness of our souls, and to escape the wrath that we justly deserve. For that reason, we thank you for Christ, that he condescended himself to us, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, humbling himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the love that we have received, one that came at such a great cost, and one that is made available to all men through Christ, who is the one mediator between God and men. In light of this truth, we continue to pray for the salvation of all men, according to your word, from the highest in government to those who are battling in the front lines of this pandemic, men, women, and children of every tribe, tongue, and nation, we pray for their repentance. Would you bring them to their knees and to the end of themselves, and would you draw their hearts to you to know the peace and joy of your salvation? We pray for missionaries and churches around the world including ours and others here in the Bay Area. May we be committed and strengthened to carry out the calling that we have been given to live and proclaim the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. At this time, we also want to lift up members of our congregation to you. We praise you for the recent births of newborns in the past few weeks to Edwin and Priscilla, to Andy and Esther, and to Michael and Connie. Every life is truly precious, and birth is truly a miracle. And so we pray for your continued protection over their lives. Would you strengthen the parents in the days ahead as they deal with the challenges of raising and shepherding these little ones? We also pray for all those in our midst who have been impacted by COVID, either directly through sickness or indirectly through the loss of a job, a family member, or even possible exposure. For those struggling with fear, anxiety, even weariness of soul, would you keep them in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you as they trust in you? And for any who are listening, who have not completely submitted to Christ as Lord, would you open their eyes, awaken their souls, make them feel the weight of their sin, that they might repent and turn to Christ this day. 
Finally, we pray for the preaching of your word, that as you promised, you would reveal yourself to us afresh. May your word have its intended effect on our hearts. As we behold you, would we be transformed from one degree of glory to another, cause each of us to repent, obey, and grow in faith until Christ is fully formed in us. It's in his name and for his honor we pray. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone, and just want to welcome those of you who are with us this morning. We have a smaller crowd. Um, And for all of you who are joining us via live stream, uh, thank you for joining us. Um, Trust that you all had a blessed and quiet Christmas, uh, a different one than Christmas is in the past, but hopefully one that was full of Christ. And, um, you know, as we consider God's word and as we remember and celebrate our Savior's coming, 2,000 years ago, we are also, as a church, called to prepare and to anticipate and to await his second coming uh, and to understand that it will come at an hour and a time that we may not anticipate or expect, uh, but that he is surely coming. And so that is a great hope for those of us who have placed our trust in him. Uh, That should cause us to fear if we are not in Christ. And so if you are listening this morning, and have not surrendered your life to following Christ as Savior and Lord, we invite you to do so even this day. Well, this morning we have the privilege of um, having a guest uh, speaker, um, Pastor Ryan Wong from New Life. Our Pastor Mark is actually preaching at New Life this morning, so you can all be praying for him as well. Um, But just thankful for Pastor Ryan um, and all the pastors from New Life uh, with whom we have a great partnership in the gospel. And uh, I was just, just talking to him briefly this morning and just catching up on how COVID has impacted both of our churches. And one thing that just remains true in terms of our commitment as a church is that Christ um, is our supreme authority and we follow him and his word. And as he calls us to gather, even in these unprecedented and challenging times, it is for his good purposes and we've saw so we've seen really the value of of gathering together and the necessity of his people to gather together to hear his word to be shepherded to be equipped and so that together we can proclaim the greatness of god uh, to the rest of this world and so we're thankful that uh, we're able to do that in various contexts and this morning we're just so thankful that ryan could be be with us to uh, bring us his word from the book of job so ryan you come with us, come to us, come up here and, and bring us his word. Thank you. Thanks, Ted. Good morning, Lighthouse. Can you guys hear me? All right. Okay, cool. Well, it's such a pleasure, though, to join you guys for worship this morning. I hope you and your families have had a blessed Christmas and that you are really doing well in the Lord, especially during this season, this Christmas season, but also this during this pandemic. Um, and, you know, this being the last Sunday of this year, it, to say that 2020 has been a unique year is probably an understatement. Uh, I'm, I'm sure suffering, trials, tribulation, sickness, sorrow, pain has probably been a description for many of you. Um, it's been a description for many of us at our, at our church, at New Life. And so um, it is, though, a privilege to just turn our attention um, to the subject of suffering this morning. 
um, what better place than to address that as we close out this year? Um, it was about 12 or 13 years ago um, that my grandfather was still alive, and I was in college at the time. And I, I still remember a conversation I had with him. At one of our family gatherings, he wasn't a Christian, and so I tried to share the gospel of Christ with him. I began to share about God's love for him, the work of Jesus Christ dying on the cross for his sins, and he listened intently. He allowed me to finish my sharing of the gospel with him. And then he said to me, Ryan, all of this sounds really good. Thank you for sharing it with me, but I can never accept a God who allows suffering in the world to happen. He shared about the fact that he, when he was in World War II, he said, I had fellow soldiers in my platoon who were Christians. They would pray to their God for safety before heading out to the battlefield, only to be shot dead the very same day. He asked me, what kind of God allows this to happen? What kind of God allows suffering and evil to spread throughout the world? Then he went on. Your grandmother passed away 20 years ago. She died when she was 60, when you were three years old. And she was a Christian. She prayed to God every night and went to church every Sunday. And yet she was taken away from me. What kind of God would do that to me? I can't believe this kind of God. And at the time, being a young Christian myself, I didn't have any answers. I felt like he brought up some very worthy concerns. I didn't know what to say. And it's the age-old objection to Christianity. How is it possible to have a good God who could allow suffering and evil in the world? And friends, how do you answer this kind of question? How do you explain a good, all-powerful God and yet the presence of evil and suffering? As you know, likely from experience, you and I live in a world full of suffering. And the suffering at times seems random, horrific, and unexpected. No matter what precautions you take, no matter how well you have put together the good life, no matter how hard you work, something will inevitably seem to ruin it. No amount of money, power, and planning can prevent bereavement, illness, relational betrayals, financial disasters, and a whole host of other trials from entering your own life. And it's no more obvious than the setting we find ourselves in this year and this morning. During this season of pandemic, many of us have faced trials like we haven't faced before. It came out of nowhere, almost unexpected. And our frailty and our fragility, the fragility of life, has become a new reality that many of us have never been accustomed to. But as Christians, how do you explain this? And just as important, how do you respond to this? Well, for this morning, we come to God's answer to this question. Why do bad things seem to happen to good people? And even more generally, why is there so much suffering going on in the world? 
Well, as we turn our attention to the book of Job in its last four chapters, this morning you're going to see two godly responses to suffering. Two godly responses to suffering. And you need to start cultivating these responses now so that when suffering appears, and it will, you won't succumb to despair or depression. If these two responses are rightly applied, seasons of suffering will not be destructive to your faith, but instead become a source of spiritual growth and maturity. You see, some people are destroyed by their faith, in their faith, by pain and suffering. But for others, suffering is the time when their faith is the most strengthened and even ignited. And so how do you respond then to suffering? Now, we are picking up the book of Job, um, really in the last four chapters this morning, where that's where we're going to be focus, focusing on. And by way of summary, let me just catch us up to speed on the first uh, 37 chapters or so. You see, in Job 1, we are introduced to the person of Job. He was a man of blamelessness, an upright man who feared God and turned away from evil. And in Job 1, after a brief introduction to Job's godly character, we are then transported to a scene going on in heaven, a conversation going on between God and Satan. And Satan literally means the accuser. And as the accuser, Satan proposes a hypothesis to God. He said something along the lines that the only reason Job served God was because God gave him all of these good blessings. And if you take these good things away from him, He will curse you. And so, God allowed Satan to test his proposal. Take everything away from Job and you'll see that he worships me for me. And so that's what happened to Job. Everything good in his life, his health, his family, his wealth, was taken away from him in a matter of a day. And remember, Job had no idea what was happening behind the scenes. He was not privy to this conversation between God and Satan. He had no idea this experience would someday be an encouragement for thousands of Christians throughout the centuries reading this book. Job lost everything without any explanation. And yet, isn't that how suffering typically works? No answers, only questions. And then in chapters 3 to 36, enter Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Zophar, and Bildad. And over 34 chapters, these three friends sought to give Job their opinions and counsel. And they made this simplistic argument. They said this, that number one, God is a just God. And number two, God always operates his world according to justice. And so they concluded, number three, that Job must have done something wrong to deserve this kind of suffering. And they had this assumption that God's justice means that if you are good, God will bless you with a good life. And if you do evil, God will punish you with pain and suffering. See, Job's friends had a somewhat domesticated view of God. They were spreading theologically Theological cliches. To them, there was no mystery with God. If life is good, you're living in a good way. You're living rightly. And if life is bad, you must have done 
something wrong. But this simplistic response misses the mark in terms of who God is and how he works. See, God doesn't fit in a box that's easily understood from our limited vantage point. In response to these accusations, though, Job gives his own defense. He argued with his friend, saying, you know, I'm innocent. I haven't done anything wrong. My suffering isn't because of some sort of sin going on in my own life. And in this, he was right. His suffering was not because of some outrageous sin. His suffering was because God allowed it to happen. But here's the problem. Job began to doubt God. He began to question God, concluding even at times that either God was unjust or that he lacked the power to do anything about his suffering. He asked the perennial question of those in pain. Why is this happening? Why is this happening to me? Job then demands that God shows up personally to explain himself. Job 31 verse 35 says, Oh, that I have one to hear me. Behold, here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. And so this is the setting we find ourselves in where we pick up the narrative. We go to Job chapter 38. And in Job 38, God finally appears. He appears and he sets the record right. And God gives his answer to Job's complaints. Now, looking at um, these four chapters from a bird's eye view, this passage can be split up under three main headings. First, there is God's interrogation. In chapters 38 to 40, verse 2, God gives his first speech to Job. And then in chapter 40, verse 6 through chapter 41, God gives a second speech to Job. And in these speeches, God directs 64 questions for Job to answer. Now, the second heading of this passage is Job's response to God. Chapter 40, verses 3 to 5, there's Job's first response. And then chapter 42, verses 1 to 6, there's Job's second response. And then finally, in the last few verses of chapter 42, there's a short epilogue in which God brings restoration to Job. And so as we look to this passage, turning to chapter 38, God shows up and appears to Job after 37 chapters of silence. But notice, his response to Job is not how Job was expecting. It's not how you and I would expect either. We'll read verses 1 to 11. So turn your Bibles to Job 38, verses 1 to to 11. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding who set its measurements since you know or who stretched the line on it on what were its bases sunk or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of god shouted for joy or who enclosed the sea 
with doors. When bursting forth, it went out from the womb. When I made a cloud its garment, and thick darkness its swaddling band. And I placed boundaries on it, and set a bolt and doors. And I said, Thus far you shall come, but no farther. And here shall your proud waves stop. Now, what do we see in these first 11 verses? See, after Job had questioned God's justice, notice here that God doesn't answer Job's question. God answers Job with his own set of questions. And as a bit of a side note, sometimes the right answer to a question is to ask a provoking question yourself. In fact, that's the way Jesus often responded. He was constantly bombarded with questions throughout his ministry, but Jesus, as the masterful teacher, rarely gave straightforward answers. He used questions to expose the nature of the questioner's heart. See, a rich man, right, once asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to, be, to inherit eternal life? And that question was a perfect setup for a clear and concise gospel presentation, right? Jesus could have easily answered it with a five-point outline. But how did Jesus respond? He posed a better question. Why do you call me good? You see, usually the best way to respond to a skeptic, a doubter, or even an aggressor is to ask a question in response. And here, God's questions serve as a twofold rebuke and exhortation to Job. God implies that Job's doubts and complaints were foolish, misguided, and even senseless. And as you look at these first 11 verses and then to the rest of God's speeches, God's answer to Job's suffering was a revelation of who he is as God. And this is what brings us now to the first godly response to suffering. And it's this, to elevate your view of God. Elevate your view of God. Here in verses 1 to 11, God's questions to Job can be summarized like this. Who created the universe? Job, who created the universe? And the rhetorical answer, God says, I did, not you. God created the universe. He is the creator of all things. God created the world from nothing. He didn't begin with any building blocks. He simply spoke the world into existence. In verses 4 to 7, God asks, who laid the groundwork and foundation of the earth? In other words, who made the soil, the rocks, the mountains, and all the land masses we see and live upon? Job, were you there when the angels sang and shouted for joy at my creation? In verses 8 to 11, God asks, who created the sea? Who delineated exactly how far the waves would go and where they would exactly stop? If you go down to Half Moon Bay around this time of the year, you can see powerful waves called mavericks that can get up to 60 feet. And even though they're enormous, powerful, and dangerous, notice they all break down and turn into ripples right where the beach meets the land. They don't go any farther or any further. Why? Because God said it so. He said, you shall come, but no farther. 
And God's essentially saying, Job, you think you know better than me? Where were you when all of this world was created? In Romans 9, Paul was asked a similar question by the Romans who were finding injustice in God's sovereign election. Paul writes, On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? My house has never once said to me, Ryan, I don't want you living here anymore. Go away, get out. My computer has never once said, I don't want to reflect what you're typing right now. I have a better idea of what to say. And my car has never said, I don't feel like driving you today. Let's stay home. See, Paul echoes what God is saying here in Job. If God created you, he has every right to do with you as he pleases. The created has no right to speak back to the creator. Now, continuing in this passage and throughout the rest of chapters 38 and 39, God gives an overview of natural phenomena that only God understands, of which Job has no clue about. And here these questions can be summarized by this. Who comprehends the universe? Who comprehends the universe? And God says, only I can understand the universe. Chapter 38, verses 12 to 21, God asks, who caused the sun to rise and set? Have you seen and been to every part of the earth? Have you seen the ocean's floors? What happens after death's gates? God says with irony, surely you know, for you were already born. You have lived so many years. Now, Job was likely in his 60s or his 70s. He was at the peak of of man's wisdom. But even the smartest and wisest of people, they'll only understand just a fraction of what's going on in the universe. But God knows it all. And in verses 22 to 30 of chapter 38, God asked Job, Can you explain the weather? Can you describe where the snow comes from? Who disperses the lightning? Who chooses when it's time for the rain to drop and the rain to stop? And then verses 31 to 38 of chapter 38, who holds the stars in their place and who tells the clouds to form in the sky? And then in the rest of chapter 39, God expands in detail regarding the intricacies of the animal kingdom. He asks, how do lions and ravens find their food? How do mountain goats and deer give birth? Have you seen it? Who can tame a wild ox? And then he goes into the negligence of an ostrich and their parenting habits, and yet how God still sustains them. He draws attention to the fearlessness of horses during a battle, and he highlights how hawks can spy out their prey over long distances. He goes on in chapters 40 and 41 to describe a behemoth and a leviathan, two great and magnificent beasts that man has no way of controlling. And ruling over. And all of these animals are God's work of art, revealing His wisdom, His power, and beauty. 
And then in chapter 40, verse 1, God asked Job, Will the fault finder, will you, the fault finder, contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. In other words, you think you know better than me, Job? You have a problem with what's happening in your life and what's happening in the world? Can you answer my questions? The point here is perspective. God is saying, if you can't even fathom the mysteries behind these natural things going on in the world, are you really in a place to judge these eternal matters? Are you really in a place to judge God? See, the assumption Job and his friends had was that they knew enough about the world to scrutinize God's ways. But God's answer, who do you think you are? Did you create the universe? Can you even understand the universe? Notice here, God doesn't solve the problem the way you were expecting. Job wants reasons for his suffering. God doesn't answer the question. He says instead, look at who I am. See, if you think about it, trace every single spiritual problem in your life. It always comes back to a wrong view of God. Your God is too small, too little, too insignificant. You see, we're still in the darkness of COVID-19, which erupted at the beginning of this year. And it's been a long nine months. You thought things were going to get better, and especially start getting better by now. It's already Christmas and almost New Year's, right? But it's not getting better, and it seems to be getting worse. And you say, the situation is so frustrating. It makes you more irritable, angry, anxious, fearful, even discontent with this situation and your circumstances. You say, if only COVID-19 didn't happen, I wouldn't be so fearful and anxious anymore. Because here's the problem with this kind of thinking. Only some of you are experiencing these kinds of reactions. Others of you, though, I'm sure, are not experiencing these feelings or emotions at all. Some of you, I can, I'd guess, are perfectly fine and even prefer this pandemic season. Some of you even appreciate the season and love the season and give thanks to God for this season. And how do I know this? It's because I asked my church this very same question. See, at, at our church, New Life, earlier this year, we sent out a poll to all of our members. You know, how do you feel about sheltering in place? How do you feel about being stuck at home with your families? And some people said, I'm going crazy. I can't wait for this to end. But others said, Man, I'm loving this season. All this additional time with my family. Let's keep this going, some of them said. Now, COVID-19 is just the setting because people respond to it in all of these different ways, right? In my own family, for example, some people are very scared, won't even go outside, stay home at every single moment. And others are a little more bold. So people respond in so many different ways. So COVID-19 then 
is not the cause of your anxiety, your anger, your depression, or your discontentment. Instead, COVID-19 has just been revealing how you think about God. In your marriage, some of you are frustrated with your spouse and who they are. But do you trust God? Do you trust God is big enough to change your spouse, to change your heart, and even if not, to meet your deepest longings and desires? In your parenting, are you anxious about who your child is becoming? And do you feel like you need to take everything into your own hands? Or instead, do you biblically parent with faithfulness, leaving the results up to God because his plans are always good. In your singleness, do you believe that God is better and more satisfying than a significant other and more than able to fulfill and fill your void you feel in your own heart? Whether it's your marriage, your children, your job situation, your relationship with your parents, or COVID-19, All of these situations and circumstances serve as the backdrop behind revealing what kind of God you worship. And many of you likely prefer a God who is small, a God you can manage and explain, a God who makes sense and fits within your expectations and plans, a God who's just a little smarter just a little stronger version of us, but a God who will never embarrass you. As one British author once wrote, a God small enough to be understood will never be a God big enough to be worshipped. There was once a philosopher named J.L. Mackey, and he made a case against God. He argued that if a good and powerful God exists, he said he would not allow pointless evil. But because there's so much unjustifiable, pointless evil in the world, the traditional good and powerful God could not ever exist. Some other God or no God may exist, but not the traditional God of the Bible. And it's the same argument that my grandfather had. And the same argument we're seeing here in the book of Job. How can a good God allow for suffering and evil to take place. But you see, here's the problem with these kinds of questions. You see, see, tucked away within this assertion is a false premise and a false assumption. That if evil appears pointless to me, then it must be pointless. If evil appears pointless to me, then it must be pointless, right? But this assumption is foolish given that we are finite and limited in our ability to understand even the most basic of things. As author Tim Keller explained it, just because you can't see or imagine a good reason why God might allow suffering to happen doesn't mean there can't be one. Again, we see lurking within supposedly hard-nosed skepticism an enormous faith in one's own cognitive faculties. If our minds can't plumb the depth of the universe for good answers to suffering, we assume, well, there can't be any. This is blind faith of a high order. 
me ask you a somewhat random question. What did you eat on December 19th for lunch? It was just one week ago today. Another question. What did you do on November 27th, 2020, exactly one month ago from today? And I bet as you're trying to think about it, you're, you're probably having a little bit trouble remembering what you ate and what you did. But whatever you did on November 27th was probably fairly important to you in the moment. And whatever you ate on December 19th was likely something you were interested in at that time. And yet, why are you struggling to even remember these very simple facts? You see, without intense intentionality, focus, and studying, we can barely remember anything about what happens in our own lives, let alone the lives of others. But God is omniscient. He knows everything. Nothing happens outside of his purview. Even the smallest drop in a bucket does not surpass his gaze. God knows and understands everything that happens in every movement, in every moment throughout the universe. And yet consider how arrogant it is for someone who can't even remember what he ate last week to suppose that you can detect all the purposes of an infinitely all-knowing and wise God. Just because you can't explain all the reasons why doesn't mean God has no reason. Now, looking again at the text, God has one more general question. In chapters 40 to 41, God's interrogation continues, and it can be summarized like this. Who controls the universe? Job, who controls the universe? Looking at chapter 40, verse 6, Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm and said, Now gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you, and you instruct me. Will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? Or do you have an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with eminence and dignity and clothe yourself with honor and majesty. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and make him low. Look on everyone who is proud and humble him and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them in the dust together. Bind them in the hidden place. Then... I will also confess to you that you, your own right hand can save you. Now, what do we see in this interrogation? God asked Job, so do you think you can run the universe better than me? You're unhappy with your circumstances? You're complaining? Here's a proposal. Try being God for a day. Can you carry out any of my works? Can you, can you make your voice like mine? Can you humble the proud man? Can you punish the wicked where they stand? Can you be like me, even for a day? Professor Robert Wilson was a professor of Old Testament at Princeton Theological Seminary from 1900 to 1929, before the seminary really went down its liberal path. And one of his students at the time was the famous preacher-to-be named Donald Gray Barnhouse. 
Twelve years after he graduated from Princeton, Barnhouse was invited back to preach in the seminary chapel. And as Barnhouse stood up to preach, he noticed his old teacher sitting down near the front of the pulpit. When chapel ended, Professor Wilson approached his student and extended his hand and said, If you come back again, I will not hear you preach. I only come back once. And I'm glad that you are a big godder. When my boys come back, I come back to see if they are big godders or little godders. And then I will know how their ministry will be. And not sure what he meant, Barnhouse asked for some clarification. And Dr. Wilson said, Well, some men have a little God, and they're always in trouble with him. He can't do any miracles. He doesn't intervene on behalf of his people. They have a little God, and I can call them little godders. Then there are those who have a great God. He speaks, and it's done. He commands, and it stands fast. He knows how to show himself strong on behalf of those who fear him. Then Dr. Wilson stopped for a moment and smiled to Barnhouse. You have a great God, and he will bless your ministry. God bless you. And as I read this story, I began to wonder, if I was given this kind of 30-minute test with someone, or if you were given this kind of 30-minute test with someone, without any preparation, without any knowledge of this test, without any idea that it was happening in the moment, would the people around you come away with the impression that you have a great and glorious God? A God who is big. A God who is great. Who is God to you? What kind of God do you worship and follow? How do you speak and talk and act regarding this God? See, your view of God ultimately shapes what happens in your own life and what decisions you make. As A.W. Tozer put it, the most pretentious fact about any man is what he has in his deep heart conceives about God to be like. We tend to move toward our mental image of God. If you have a little God, you assume he can do only little things. But if you have a big God, you know and believe he can do far more abundantly than anything you ask or think. Theologian J.I. Packer, who passed away earlier this year, he wrote these beautiful words. He said this, Today, vast stress is laid on the thought that God is personal. But this truth is so stated to leave the impression that God is a person of the same sort as we are. Weak, inadequate, ineffective, a little pathetic. But this is not the God of the Bible. Our personal life is a finite thing. It is limited in every direction, in space, in time, in knowledge, in power. But God is not so limited. He is eternal, infinite, and almighty. He has us in his hands. We never have him in ours. 
Like us, he is personal, but unlike us, he is great. The Bible never lets us lose sight of his majesty and his unlimited dominion over all his creatures. Some of you might be wondering, okay, Ryan, how can I do this then? How can I elevate my view of God? Let me ask you, have you read your Bible, the entire Bible before? We're at the end of the year and we're about to start a new year. This is the time to start that Bible reading plan where we can read it in a year. How is it possible to have a view of a great God when you haven't seen and witnesses his greatness and glory as displayed in his own word? If you haven't read your Bible from cover to cover, I encourage you to do so. It's the only way to really know who God is. Let me tell you something more. Don't stop with just reading your Bible once through. See, there's a temptation to think, well, I've done it before, I'm good, and I'm done. Maybe you've read the Bible a lot in your past, but now you've stopped doing it in the present. Are you content with how much you know about God right now? Are you content with how much you know about who he is? How arrogant, though, it is to think that you know all there is to know about God. The beauty of the Bible is that it reveals God's infinite wisdom and his unlimited ways. The more you read it, the more you see. From reading the Bible once through, do you think it's possible that you know everything there is to know about God, his ways, and his character? Some of you are acting functionally like that's the case. Some of you are probably so caught up on social media, every article that's going on on the internet, every Instagram post devouring what's written on the New York Times, CNN. And on one side, it's good to stay up to date what's happening in our society, but it's another thing to be consumed by it. And I'm sure some of you are so consumed so well with what's going on in society, and yet we neglect the Word of God, about who God is, and about His greatness and glory. And as a supplement, there's a whole slew of books as well that can help summarize biblical material on who God is, otherwise known as theology proper. There's the book Knowing God, right, by J.I. Packer. There's the book Attributes of God, by A.W. Pink. There's the book Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer, Our Awesome God by John MacArthur, The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. There's no shortage of material that helps us and summarizes what the scriptures teach about who God is and what he's like. So would today be the day where you begin to make God bigger in your own view, greater and grander than ever before? Because that's the way, according to God's word, to be ready for suffering. You have to have a bigger view of God. Now, continuing in our passage, though, we now want to turn our attention to Job's response to God's question. See, throughout God's interrogation, we saw that you need to elevate your view of God. Now, through Job's reply, we see the second godly response to suffering, and it's this, to lower your view of self. Lower your view of self. Modern psychology says that the answer to life's problems is found in yourself. 
And I see this perspective all the time with some of my own coworkers who say, there's nothing more important than taking care of yourself. Trust yourself. Do whatever makes you feel good about yourself. Proponents of these perspectives, prioritizing live, living for the welfare and enjoyment of self, to love yourself, to esteem yourself, to pamper yourself. But the solution to your suffering is not better self-esteem, more self-love, and higher self-image. Let's look for a bit at the Bible's perspective of self. Turning to Job 40, verses 3 to 5, Job responds to God's first series of questions like this. He says, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken, and I will not answer. Even twice, I will add nothing more. See, Job's response was silence. He was silent. No longer questioning or demanding from God, he held his tongue. He stopped his accusations. He listened instead to what God had to say. What a contrast, though, right, to our society, the society we live in, where you demand and expect to have the last word, where everyone has a platform and everyone contributes their two cents, where injustice must always be called out, filmed, and exposed, where individualism and freedom are the gods of this age. Now, to be sure, freedom of speech is a blessing in our country. We give thanks to God for it because it allows us to proclaim God's word freely without persecution. At the same time, do you let God have the last word? Does he have final authority in your life? When he speaks, are you silent? Job says he's insignificant. He finally recognized that God is on the throne and he had no right to his own self-justification and his questioning of God. Then, in Job 42, he responds again to God's second interrogation. Verse 1 of Job 42. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel from knowledge? Therefore I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Here, now, and I will speak. I will ask you and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. Now, here in this passage, we see more of Job's present condition. After two speeches from God, Job is humble. He's humble. Job says, I know you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Finally, Job recognizes and confesses that God knows what he's doing and he submits to the sovereignty of God. This is often how God uses your suffering to make you trust in him and not yourself. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we see the Apostle Paul's response to suffering. He was given a thorn in the flesh. The passage doesn't indicate what or who exactly this was, but this thorn caused severe suffering, trial and pain 
throughout Paul's life. 2 Corinthians 12.7 says, For this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Considering this, concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. See, contrary to having high self-esteem and a better self-image, a biblical response to suffering is a heart of humility. We see one more truth regarding Job's condition. He's also repentant. He's repentant. Repentance is a change in mind, resulting in a change of action. Yes, Job was blameless and righteous, but he still sinned. And he retracts his words, he confesses his sin of doubting and self-justification, and seeks to make things right. And this repentance was done with dust and ashes, which indicates a heart of sorrow and mourning in the ancient world. Job's repentance comes from a heart that's soft to God's word. When you are confronted with the person and work of God, notice Job was silent, humble, and repentant. See, the Bible teaches and reinforces self-denial rather than self-affirmation, self-worth, or self-achievement. 2 Timothy 3 verse 2 tells us that in the last days, men will be lovers of self. And we are told to avoid such men as these. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 15 says, He died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again. And finally, Romans 14 verse 7, For not one of us lives for himself. And not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. A biblical understanding of self points not to one's own self-glorification and achievement, but the replacement of selfish desires to Christ's desires. As Philippians tells us, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, let's turn for a few moments to Job 42, the last few verses in the book. Verse 10, what we see is the Lord restores the fortune of Job. When he prayed for his friends and the Lord increased all that Job had twofold. And then verse 12, the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camel, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys, He had seven sons and three daughters. Then verse 16, after this, Job lived 140 years and he saw his sons and his grandsons four generations and Job died an old man and full of days. Now, as the epilogue concludes this book, book, Job is brought to full restoration. God blessed him in a manner of double of what he had prior to his suffering. But as you read the end of Job 42, and you look at that passage, there are a couple things that are absent in God's restoration. First, where's Satan, right? Satan, where's Satan? He was there at the beginning, 
But he's nowhere to be found. Satan's gone. He doesn't show up. Why? Because God was right. God was glorified. Job worshipped God for who God was, not the blessing. Yes, he struggled, he wavered, he questioned God, but through it all, Job continued to pray, he continued to pursue and lean upon God. God was right, and God's glory was on display. Satan was nowhere to be found because he was silent. But a second thing that's absent in God's restoration is this, that there is still no explanation given. No explanation given to Job. God blessed Job. God restored his fortune. But there's no answers to his suffering. No explanation behind it. Job is never given the reasons. He's never told why everything was taken away and just as much why everything was restored twofold. You see, on one side, this dismantles the notion of the prosperity gospel. God never makes a connection or cause between obeying him and having more materially prosperous of a life. At the same time, God blesses Job because it was in his good pleasure to do so. He didn't have to, but he chose to in his grace. Psalm 115, verse 3, But our God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. We don't know the reasons why. But we have a God who is great. This morning, we've seen two godly responses to suffering. To elevate your view of God and to lower your view of self. The fact that you don't know the reasons behind your suffering this morning, the fact that we don't know why COVID-19 began and this pandemic and this season of life, it's not a slight on God. Instead, it's more of a reason to extol him. One commentator, Francis Anderson, summarizes the book of Job in this way. And it's a good way for us to close out our time together. He wrote this. It's one of the many excellencies of the book that Job is brought to contentment without ever knowing all the facts of his case. The test would work only if Job did not know what it was for. God thrust Job into an experience of dereliction to make it possible for Job to enter into a life of naked faith, to learn to love God for himself alone. Part of the discovery is to see the suffering itself as one of God's most precious gifts. To withhold the full story from Job, even after the test was over, keeps him walking by faith, not by sight. He does not say in the end, now I see it all. He never sees it all. He only sees God. Perhaps it is better if God never tells any of the whole of our life story. A revelation of who God is is what God gives to us, not an explanation of suffering. And that's enough. And it's enough for us. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we come before you, the God of this universe, the creator and the controller of all things. 
You are adorned in eminence and dignity. You are clothed with honor and majesty. How unsearchable searchable are your judgments and unfathomable your ways. You are our God. Our God. Who is rich in wisdom and knowledge. We are insignificant. We are weak and pathetic compared to you. Even the greatest of us are specks of dust compared to your glory. And as we go forward this morning, would you prepare us, Father, for suffering? Knowing that a biblical response to suffering produces an eternal weight of glory. That the outcome of our suffering would be a purified faith, resulting in praise, honor, and glory when Christ returns. But for now, help us to behold your glory. Our God, who is seated on the throne, our King, to whom no one can compare. Would we adore you, our great and glorious God? We pray this all now in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son.